0: Good morning everybody. Welcome to church today. My name is Tim if we've never met before and I just want to say a quick word of thanks to all the guys who reached out and invited me to their deer stands this week. I really appreciate that. That's a little joke if you were here last week. I need to begin with a quick apology as well this week. I forgot to uh, just explain last week that we're switching up the order of service a little bit. We're going to have the scripture reading right at the start of our teaching time like we just did. That's just going to be for this teaching series, okay? And then we'll go back to normal, whatever normal is. Uh, But some of you are here for the first time. You have no idea what I'm talking about. That's cool. We changed the order of service. And look, you're all okay. Okay you're all okay. We made a change and then we didn't explain it and everybody's okay. Aren't you okay? All right. Well, we're going to continue this morning. Oh, I should say just also uh, we're going to spend some time at the end of the teaching time uh, in prayer. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, but uh, what's happening in Turkey this morning is very much on our minds. Uh, So we're going to pray for that as a congregation at the end of our time. Okay. In the meantime, though, let's uh, continue our teaching series, Words to Live By. This is a series about the Bible, and we've been talking about how awesome would it be to hear the sure and steady and infallible voice of God. How can I know that what's happening in my head, in my heart, how can I know that that is the voice of God and not something uh, that I'm just making up? And why do Christians say this Is the word of the Lord whenever we read it together? Do Christians believe that this fell from heaven in King James English? And if that's not the case, why do we say that it's the word of the Lord? We want to root our confidence together as a congregation in what Jesus has said about the written word of God. And that's uh, what we're doing in this teaching series. If you want to hear the voice of God, this is where. We go. And actually, our first scripture reading this morning, John chapter 10, is a great example of why we root our confidence here in the written word of God. T- turn to John chapter 10 again, page 897. And it, uh, so this describes a really sharp controversy between Jesus and some Jewish leaders because Jesus has said that he's the Son of God. It's verse 36. And he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jewish leaders interpret this as a claim to divinity, and they say, uh, We're not going to stone you because of the good works you've done. We're going to stone you because you make yourself out to be God. Now, uh, here's why that matters. At the turn of the last century, there was a movement within Christianity, within Christian scholarship, to demythologize and de supernaturalize. The Bible. The thought, what you know, uh, Darwinian evolution was on the ascendancy, and the thought was that modern people just cannot handle virgin births and walking on water and resurrections from the dead. And if we want to be relevant into the 21st, into the 20th century, we're going to have to strip uh, our teaching or our message of all this supernatural stuff and become a, a movement of social reform and just general benevolence. So Christian scholars began approaching the Bible, and especially the Gospel of John, uh, through the lenses of something called higher criticism. You don't have to know what that is this morning, but things like literary and historical and textual criticism. And uh, those things actually are not bad. We'll actually teach you some of that in grasping God's Word. A lot of it is just common sense on how to read an old book. But when you... uh, bring those tools to the bible and assume that there cannot be any supernatural what happened is they just started to take the bible apart i mean like string cheese just tearing it apart today we would call it deconstruction but they're trying to explain apart from god why is this here The historical assumption has always been, well, we have the scriptures because people were there and they saw it and they wrote it down for us. But if you get rid of that possibility, it just leaves you with, well, what really happened? Who really wrote these things? What was their real agenda when they wrote it? And the result was a bewildering array of theories about where the Bible comes from. So today, if you sit in any freshman humanities course, you're going to be taught that the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses Could not have possibly been written by Moses, if there even was a Moses, but they were written by multiple people, sometimes thousands of years apart with very different agendas. You're going to be taught about the Isaiahs, right? So the the prophecies of Isaiah are so specific and so accurate that the assumption is, well, they could not have been written before the fact. There must have been multiple Isaiahs, hundreds of years apart, writing after the fact, you're going to be taught that the Old Testament is not a struggle uh, uh, to, to know and be faithful to God. It's actually the story of Israel's evolution from animism to polytheism, then to monotheism, and finally to the triumph of the temple and the priestly order and things like that. So the Exodus must have been written after the exile, and 1 Samuel is actually older than Genesis, and on and on it goes. And every single part of the Bible has been dissected, deconstructed, turned inside out, stripped of the possibility of God, and then presented to the public like this literary Frankenstein. And it depends on what kind of Frankenstein you get, depending on the school of thought that it comes from. But it's just these wild theories about how we got the Bible. And the Gospel of John, which was our scripture reading this morning, is a great case in point. The Gospel of John presents us with a very divine Jesus. Uh, we, You know, right here in John 10, he's claiming to be God, but it's all over the place in the Gospel of John. And so the assumption is, well, that cannot be. Higher criticism came along and said, Jesus never said he was God. He had no pretensions about being the son of God. He was a charismatic peasant teacher who taught about love and inclusivity and peace or a radical Marxist fighting for the proletariat, depending on who you're reading, okay? But the divinity of Jesus clearly was cooked up 400 years later by the church to bolster its authority and oppress people. You've probably heard this, or you don't watch TV, or you, don't, or you live under a rock, or something like that. Then in the 1980s, or the, is it the 80s or the 70s? I, I can't remember. In the 1980s or 70s, archaeologists digging around in a garbage dump in Egypt find a very, very old piece of papyrus with Greek writing on front and back. You can go see it at Oxford today. It's called the P90 manuscript. And it's a part of the Gospel of John, dated to about 110 AD. That's almost within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. It's almost word for word what you have sitting in your lap this morning. You know, the whole whole scholarship community is like, whoops. (laughs) Our bad. Oh, well, okay. There are so many examples like this. Just since I was in college, okay? So for 100 years, that's the assumption. And if you're a college student during those 100 years and you're, you know, being Taught these theories, you just drive your faith off a cliff, and then in the 70s, oh whoopsie daisy. Well, what about you know five generations of college students who just trashed their faith over these theories? Just since I was in college. That, like the archaeology surrounding the exodus, totally different ballgame today than it was when I was in school. There's been controversy around human DNA and a historical Adam and Eve. So when I was in college, the, you know, the scientific consensus was over here, and then it moved over here, and now it's swung back again. And you have you know scientific journals writing about genetic Eve and things like that. There's been controversy surrounding certain words that the Bible uses to talk about human sexuality. I mean, whole theories have come and gone just since I was in school. I'm like super young, okay? I have not been around that long. I mentioned recently, I mentioned last fall, archeologists found Sodom and Gomorrah in 2021. Critical scholarship laughed at that story for 150 years. And now the Smithsonian is writing articles about Sodom and Gomorrah. Oops, our bad. I'm just just sharing all to say, you know, especially if you're a student this morning, But for all of us, our confidence in the Bible rests in what Jesus says about it. He's the Son of God. He's the risen Lord. And he just knows more than 20th century critical scholarship or the scientific consensus of whatever day you happen to live in or our archaeology. And when you know that, okay, when your confidence in the scripture rests over here with Jesus, then you're able to ask all of these fascinating questions and let them be what they are. I would say in the last 20 years, I have been an adherent of just about every possible school of thought on the interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11. I still have questions about Genesis 1 through 11 that I'm thinking through. But at no point in the last 20 years has it felt like an existential threat to my faith because Jesus clearly believed that Genesis is the word of God. And whatever it intends to teach, okay, taking into into account the grammatical historical context and things, that's where all the questions come from, whatever it intends to teach, Jesus says it teaches it perfectly and without error. So questions about biology and archaeology and historical context, while they're really interesting, friends, they're going to move all over the place over the course of your lifetime. We want to know what did Jesus say about this? Because if he's been raised from the dead, he gets to tell us and we'll listen, okay? Now, if you're not a Christian this morning and you're just considering the claims of Christianity, you know, virtually all people, even adherents of other religions agree that Jesus was uh, a reliable and a fantastic teacher. And this is a great place to start. What did Jesus really believe about his scriptures? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So John chapter 10, page 897. We're not going to talk about all the awesomeness in this passage today. We're just asking, what do we learn about what Jesus believed about his Hebrew Bible, the old what we call the Old Testament? Last week, we spent most of our time talking about why the New Testament is the word of the Lord. This week, we're going to talk mostly about the Old Testament. So Jesus has made this comment, verse 30. I and the Father are one. His audience perceives he's making a claim to be God, verse 33. They want to stone him, verse 31. There's going to be a quiz on this, by the way, so you really want to have your Bible open right now, okay? Look at Jesus' response in verse 34. Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law? And then you see there are quotation marks. You see that? You see that? "Quote: I said you are God's." Close quote. Now, quiz time. Every, eyes up here. Everybody, eyes up here. No cheating. No lying in church. Okay. Who can tell me off the top of your head what scripture Jesus is quoting? Anybody? Did you cheat? You just know, okay, okay. He's, he's right, everybody. Psalm 82, so you ruined my story, okay? Okay, 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 okay. All right, so the one guy knows, okay? I just You just made me so mad, I tore my sheet of paper. Okay, okay, so one guy knows. But how many of you, when you, you know, you're reading along John chapter 10 and you see this quote, how many of you are like, well, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Psalm 82, six. That's where I would have gone, Jesus. That's what I would have done. Hit him with the old Psalm 82. Okay, none of you, even that guy. Nobody did that, okay? How many of you can even, okay, and you can't talk. You're out of the game, okay? Okay. How many of you can tell me what Psalm 82 is about? Nobody, okay? Nobody. I'm not even going to look at you, okay? In my whole life, I've never heard a sermon on Psalm 82, okay? Okay. Uh, so I'll make this really quick. Psalm 82, 6 is kind of poking fun at these wicked kings who thought they were a big deal. And God is saying, okay, so you're sons of God, but you're going to die like everybody else. And Jesus, so Jewish leaders are upset with Jesus for the word God to talk about himself. And he's just saying, you're so hung up on this word God. Even in your own scriptures, people are called sons of God. And I am way better than they are. I mean, look at all the things that I'm doing. Uh. Here's Jesus defending his life, and he does not go to the lofty passages of Isaiah or to Jeremiah or Daniel, but he he makes his case on one word in a psalm that only one dude knows about, (laughs) okay? (laughs) And, And the Psalm 82 is not quoted anywhere else in the New Testament. So what do we learn? For Jesus... Anything in the scriptures is the infallible and unbreakable word of God with absolute authority. Because then he says, and the scripture, even this one word, cannot be broken. Not a single word in what we would call the Old Testament can be wrong, weak, or an error in the things it intends to teach. And there's a whole other sermon just about that phrase. But what he means by it cannot be broken, it cannot be eased, it cannot be loosened, it cannot be nullified, it will never be invalidated in the things that it intends to teach. Let me share another example of what Jesus believes about his Bible from Matthew 5, 17. This is Jesus speaking again. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets... I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and an earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That word relaxes, in Matthew 5.19, that's the same Greek word as broken, In John chapter 10, so the scripture cannot be relaxed. It cannot be broken. In verse 18, an an iota is the tiniest letter in the Greek alphabet. It's just a, a dot is a reference to those little markings in Hebrew writing that distinguish one letter from another. So Jesus is saying not a single speck of God's written word can be broken or abolished. Now, can it be fulfilled? This is a quiz time. If you have Matthew 17, can it be fulfilled? Yeah. Can it be better understood? For sure. But it can never be broken. Now, let's contrast this with some really popular teaching that you'll find on YouTube or the, or the tickety Talk. okay? This is from a really popular teacher named Richard Rohr. He's something of a celebrity in progressive Christian circles. He writes this. The text moves inexorably toward inclusivity, mercy, unconditional love, and forgiveness. I call it the Jesus hermeneutic. Just interpret scripture the way Jesus did. I would would agree. He ignores, denies, or openly opposes his own scriptures whenever they are imperialistic, punitive, exclusionary, or tribal. Okay. Does Jesus ignore deny or openly oppose his own scriptures when they're punitive or exclusionary. So the scripture we just read, Matthew 5, 17, that's from the opening of something called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon in the history of the world. And in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with it, Jesus several times says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, is Jesus opposing his own scripture there i would say say no jesus is opposed to the wrong interpretation or the wrong application of scripture he's still opposed to that today by the way and he's happy to correct that what about when jesus declared all foods to be clean in one stroke jesus gets rid of all the food laws of the law of moses was he ignoring or opposing scripture no That's a great example of what he means when he says, I've come to fulfill the scripture. There are certain parts of the law of Moses, we've talked about this, for certain people at a certain place in certain times that point to Jesus and lead to him, but now that he's here, they've fulfilled their role. Okay? Some of the most difficult teaching of Jesus to reconcile with the Old Testament is when he takes Old Testament scripture and then presses it into service in another context. So for example, the law, uh, an eye for an eye, was a good, just law that our judges would do well to pay attention to. It was written for courtroom judges to keep people from enacting vendettas and vengeance on one another. Well, Jesus takes that, that law, an eye for an eye, and he presses it into another context and says, The spirit of this law in your personal relationships is that you're not to seek vengeance or to exact revenge on people, but to love your neighbor and even to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. But judges still have to uphold the the eye for an eye. So there there isn't a single time, not once, that Jesus ever ignores, denies, or opposes Scripture Jesus wants more scripture in your life, not less. He wants better application of scripture. He wants clearer understanding of scripture. He was a scripture saturated person. You just read through the Gospels this week. When Jesus speaks, he speaks scripture. When he prays, he prays the scripture. When he taught, he expounded the real meaning of scripture. When he acted, and this is something that people who deny the divinity of Jesus miss a lot. When he acted, Jesus was acting out Scripture. When he was tempted, he turned to the Scripture. And when he was facing his own death, it was Scripture that sustained the Lord Jesus. Just a few more examples of the way he talks about it. Matthew 15, 4. Jesus quotes from Exodus, and then he says, this was God speaking. Matthew nineteen five. Jesus quotes Moses, and then he said that was God speaking. Mark 12, 36, Jesus quotes a psalm of David and says David said this in the spirit. This is really interesting. Even when Jesus' enemies taught the scripture, the people who were trying to kill him, when they taught the scripture, he told his disciples, you have to listen to them. Don't do what they do because they're a bunch of hypocrites. But if they teach the scripture properly, you have to obey. Because even when a hypocrite teaches the word of God, it still cannot be broken. Jesus talks about the written word of God as though it's intrinsically powerful. John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Notice he does not say Your word contains the truth. He means that the written word of God is truth itself. He also happens to say that about himself. And it's yet another reason that we say Jesus has chosen to identify himself for the time being with his written word. People are always trying to pit Jesus... Against the written word of God and especially the Old Testament. Always trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and the Old Testament. It cannot be done without losing Jesus himself. He says in John 10:30 I and the Father are what? Two? One. I and the Father are one. People who are going to try to tell you that the Old Testament is imperialistic and punitive and exclusionary and hateful and primitive, but Jesus, Jesus' love and peace and inclusivity, they, have, they do not understand the Old Testament and they do not understand Jesus. You cannot bifurcate the Trinity and chop it up into pieces to, to please an agenda. I and the Father are one. Everything that the Father does, I do. Everything that the Father has said, I say. So that when we read Jeremiah or 1 Samuel or Exodus or Leviticus, we don't say, this is the word of the Moses or this is the word of the, of the Jeremiah or this is the word of Solomon's court historian. What do we say? This is the word of the Lord. They're all red letters again in the Old Testament. Now, last week I promised that we would finish our scripture reading from 2 Peter chapter. One, because we were talking about how Christianity is a religion of body and soul, and of external, fixed, objective words, but also of the spirit, the internal, intuitive, subjective experience of faith. Hebrews four twelve, which we read uh, just a moment ago in our worship time. Hebrews four twelve says that the word of God, and by the way, there is there is no universe that exists where when a Jewish author writes the word of God, he doesn't at least mean the written word of God. The word of God is living and active, discerning the thoughts of the heart and mind. The word of God pokes around in you. It goes to work on you. Well, how does that work? How does this move from being, you know, a flat word on a page, in modern English, 11-point font or whatever you're reading, to becoming alive in you. We're just going to talk about two things today. We're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit has both inspired the Word of God and then illuminates the Word of God. This happens by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is distinct from Jesus, okay? So Scripture says Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. It says the Spirit descended on him at his baptism, and then we're told to baptize each other in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's distinct from Jesus, and yet they're one, so that the Spirit is sometimes just called the Spirit of Jesus. So take a look at 2 Peter 1:19 through 21. What is the role of the Spirit with this written Word of God? First we see that the Spirit is its author. Verse 21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Friends, there is no doubt that the Bible is a fully human book. It comes in a human form, it's written in words that humans can comprehend by human beings for human beings. Isaiah does not sound like Jeremiah, who does not sound like Moses. Each biblical author has his own unique voice and turns of phrase and style, and yet they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How does that work? Well, we should not picture Isaiah, or Moses, or Luke for that matter, sitting down to write And then suddenly his eyes roll up in the back of his head and the pen just starts to move across the paper. That's how some people think this must have happened. There's no, no, okay? No. We need to remember our theology here. That that, that God is sovereign over every aspect of human life. So when God called Jeremiah into the ministry, for example. He says to Jeremiah, before you were even in the womb, I called you and appointed you to this service. We believe God chooses the time and place of our birth. He chooses our parents. He providentially governs our lives, our ups and downs, the heartaches, our education. He's the one that shapes our personality and gives us our gifts and our memories. He bears with us while we wander and with our weakness, he teaches us how to reflect and observe the world around us. So, of course, Moses was influenced by the ancient Near Eastern culture that he lived in. Of course, Amos was more concerned with the plight of the poor than Hosea, who was writing at the same time, whose concern was covenant faithfulness. They had different life experiences. Thank God for Luke's careful attention to to historical detail, and for Mark's passion for memorable brevity, and for John's insight into the inner life of his friend Jesus. The Spirit of God does not just work at the moment of writing, but God built these people so that when the time came, Isaiah, of his own free will, would write what needed to be said and do so infallibly. In his own voice, Jeremiah wrote exactly what needed to be written and did it infallibly, speaking to the issues of his day. Luke wrote like an Ivy League historian and Paul wrote like a trained lawyer. We also happily acknowledge that vast parts of the Old Testament are written anonymously and probably were written by committees of people. Okay. We also happily acknowledge that the books of Moses, for example, bear all the markings of later editors who updated names and tweaked things so that they were understandable in the time that they lived in. We trust the Hebrew Scriptures as they were in the first century because Jesus said this cannot be broken. Not a single word can be broken. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents by kings and shepherds and fishermen and farmers and scholars and historians. Yet from beginning to end, it tells just one story about the redemption of all things through Jesus because it has one author. And yet we get to hear it in how many voices? Six, at least 60 different voices. The dual nature of the Bible Shouldn't, shouldn't be any bigger a problem for us. It doesn't, the dual nature of the Bible, that it is fully human and fully divine, doesn't mean it has to have problems any more than the dual nature of Jesus means he has to have problems. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The, the Bible is fully human and fully divine. When God called Moses into the ministry, do you remember when Moses, he's like, no, 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 I don't speak good. I don't talk great English. Or whatever they talk. I don't blah, 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 blah. What did God say? Hey, who made your mouth? I will be with you, and I'm able to use fallible means to accomplish perfect things. Carried along means, it, it, it's not to be confused. When we say that the Spirit carried these people along, it's not to be confused with guiding them, or directing them or leading them. It's actually, it goes beyond that. The Spirit, the idea is he picked them up and guarant- he carried them along to guarantee the outcome that he wanted. So scholar Timothy Ward sums it up this way. He says, behind many objections to this understanding of the action of the Holy Spirit lies objections to divine providence which state, however unfathomable it may be to us, that an action can be simultaneously an act of God and a genuine human act at the same time. Now, how then does the written word of God, if, if, if the spirit is its author, how does it become alive in us? It's hinted at in, in 2 Peter 1.19. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Theologians call this the doctrine of illumination. The Spirit of God is the one who authored the Scriptures. He's also the one who takes them up and makes them alive to our hearts. Here's just a few examples. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Paul prays that God would give the Ephesians the Spirit... Of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. What a great phrase. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. It's a great description of the doctrine of illumination. The spirit is the one who helps your heart to see. So that as you're reading, you know, modern English, 11 point font, flat words on a page, the spirit comes along and says, hey, psst, pay attention to verse three, or you're going to screw it up. <laughs> okay? You know what I mean? Hey, I'm talking to you in this verse right now. You remember that conversation with your wife? This is what you need to tell. Do you know what I mean? Second Corinthians 4, 6 describes it this way. He says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit throws the switch, so to speak. Lights the lamp in your heart. So where you couldn't see before, all of a sudden, the words of Scripture come to life. So that's the dynamic at work. When you sit down this week with your Bibles and you open them. First of all, we give thanks. and We say, that whatever you're reading, this is the word of the Lord. And I have this promise that the Spirit will actually speak to me as I read. We're going to have to take more time in the weeks to come to illustrate this and describe this. So if you want to hear the voice of God, immerse yourself in God's Word and trust the promise that the Spirit will make it alive to you. Now, just a few things before we go, okay, because... We, just, we need to say two things. Number one, do not come to the Bible this week for an experience or a feeling, okay? We do not come to God looking for a particular experience or feeling. If you come to God to be happy, you're, you won't be happy, okay? Because that's not how relationships work. If you go on a date, okay, it's your first date, with so-and-so, and she's, you know, you start talking, and you say, you know what, I'm gonna stop you right there. What I really need from you right now is to make me feel good. I am here for you to affirm me, and love me, and give me those goose pimply feelings. That's, what is she gonna to say to you? Get lost, and you're buying dinner, right? <laughs> i 'm not a tool, I 'm not a toy, I 'm not your plaything, right? That is not how relationships work. So when you, but if you show up and you say, "I would just love to get to know you." What are you like? What are you interested in? What do you love? What do you hate? Guess what? You just landed a second date. <laughs> and all the feelings come later. If you come to the Bible this week for some kind of experience or feeling you're not going to have either. We come to God because he's God. And we come to the word of God because it's the word of God. And it's given to us as a gift. So I'm reading Isaiah in my daily Bible reading. Isaiah is a very old book written to people a long time ago, not written to me. But every single day, there are things there about God, interesting, confusing, cause me to pray, cause me to give thanks. If you come to the word of God looking for God, you'll have a great experience every time or a confusing one, one of those two things, okay? If you come looking for a feeling or some goose pimples or some kind of, you know. Now, occasionally, so yesterday in Isaiah, I had one of those moments of like, this, this is exactly what I needed here today. That happens maybe one in 10 times. If you've ever read the Psalms, okay, it's the most read book in the whole world. You may not leave your reading thinking, okay, I'm not a king like David. I don't have enemies. I'm not fighting battles, blah, blah, blah. But the Psalms bring to life just about every human emotion that exists. And there's always something in the Psalms to give thanks for. There's always something there about God. So if you sit down with your Bible and there's no particular moment of revelation or insight and you don't leave feeling any better, it wasn't a waste of time. We come to the word of God because it's the word of God and because Jesus has promised that that his own spirit will be at work. I'll I'll just, the worship team can come up. I'm just gonna close with this real quick. (laughs) I was talking with a friend this week, um, so he and another group of guys are, are taking, you know, they're leading their families in family worship, maybe some of them for the first time. They're just trying the catechism, they're, they're trying Bible reading around the table, trying Bible time at home in the morning, and uh, I, I just, I said to him, I'm a little nervous that as you guys are talking, you have this vision in your mind of family worship at the Prince house where Darcy is at the piano and I'm leading the melody and Jordan is praying in Latin and things like, and and I just say, it's not like that. Okay, it probably looks a lot like it looks at your house where a kid has his head on the table and the food is getting cold and the conversation is going nowhere. But we continue to, to do it because of the promise of Jesus, he says his word will not return void. So we just keep, you know, lick, pick, literally pick his hair up off the table. Say, you know, we're just going to keep, okay, we're almost done. And we keep reading. And one in 15 times, we have an amazing conversation. this friend also shared he's an Awana leader okay? and I don't know if this was just his Awana small group or the whole Awana group was doing it but they were talking about everything they've learned this year and just kind of celebrating and one of the boys of course to be funny said I learned Jesus wept it's the shortest verse in the Bible (laughs) funny kid okay so that's funny a day may come when Jesus wept carries him through the darkest moment of his life So just because you're not getting the goose pimply feelings today at the dinner table or you've not memorized the harmony and the kids aren't praying in Latin, these are not a failure. Every time we open the word of God together, we do so because of his promise. I will speak. Maybe not today, but I will. All right, let's let's stand and sing and we'll pray as a congregation after we've sung.